How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers. Because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm going to be in conversation today with Isabel Wilkerson. Isabel is the author of Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. She is a Pulitzer Prize winner and also a winner of the National Humanities Medal. Thank you very much for being here, Isabel. Thank you so much for having me. Now, when I was growing up and as a young adult, when I read about caste, I always would think of India because I always would read that India had castes. So is that where the word comes from? And what does the word caste really mean? That's interesting because we do, as Americans and as Westerners, think about India as the place that first comes to mind when we think of the word caste. And yet that word is actually a Portuguese word, casta, um, which was used to to describe what the Portuguese uh, explorers thought they were looking at when they came upon the system of hierarchy that existed in in India for thousands of years. And um, in India, it's a very, very complex uh, ancient system that has four main varnas, and then underneath those thousands of jatis or subcasts based upon the work that an individual is essentially consigned to do or is inherited uh, to do uh, in that society. And so the Portuguese, when they arrived, when they saw the gradations and the hierarchy uh, that was in place, they used the word casta, which for them meant breed or stock. That's how the word came to be. So we now use the word caste. Okay. So caste is a system we've seen in India and you also describe in Nazi Germany, but actually the racial discrimination problems we've had in the United States are really a caste system, not just a racial problem system. Is that an incorrect or accurate summary of your book? Well, how I would uh, describe it is that the word caste, which has been used by some observers and social scientists and centuries before in the United States, it's a word that can apply to our country when you think about uh, a very universal application of, of the definition. And the definition that I use is an artificial, arbitrary, graded ranking of human value in a society, something that determines one's standing, one's rank, the benefit of the doubt that's accorded a person, access to resources or denial of access to resources, assumptions of competence and intelligence and worthiness. And those are the kinds of things that emerge when there is a foundation of hierarchy that is applied to an entire set of people in a society. And so my research and the time that I've spent thinking about this and synthesizing what I've read leads me to believe that there are points of intersection between the ways that other societies have ranked themselves in terms of caste, 
and how the United States has ranked various groups in, in our society. And in our society, the metric that was used to determine who could be slave or free, who could have rights or no rights, who could own property or who could be property, was this um, arbitrary, actually arbitrary you know, social construct known as race. Race being something that did not need to exist, really, and it did not have meaning as long as people were essentially restricted to or living among people who look like themselves in whatever part of the world they, they were in. After colonization and the slave trade began, that's when you had groups of people who would never have interacted or had to be living in the same land, merging together in in the new world, and thus became this delineation of ranking based upon what people look like, which should be a, a neutral characteristic that should have no meaning other than the range of human manifestation but was given meaning before there was the United States as the colonies had to figure out a way to build this society you know, out of wilderness. And they you know, drove off the indigenous people and then brought in uh, Africans to be enslaved to build the country out of wilderness. And so doing consigned an entire group of people to the very bottom of an emerging hierarchy uh, that has many of the hallmarks of a caste system. Okay. But before we talk about the United States caste system that you described just now, let's talk about India for a moment and Germany. Uh, you point out in your book, you could have gone to many different countries and found a caste system. And it's not an infinite amount of time you had to do it. So you picked uh, three, essentially. Let's talk about the first one for a moment. Growing up, um, many Americans probably have heard the phrase, the untouchables, which I assume is the lowest of the caste. How long has the Indian caste system been around? Does it still exist? And what were the main attributes of it, you would say? Yeah, well, it has been around for thousands of years. It is steeped in the culture and the history of Hinduism. Essentially, it is a, a ranking of value and the roles that people historically were assigned to play in the society. And those who were at the very, very bottom of the caste system uh, were people known as untouchables, people who were in fact viewed as being outside of the caste system, outcasts one might say. And they were uh, assigned to the very, very lowest ranking, uh, the worst kinds of jobs, jobs that were viewed by definition as being dirty and lowly. Uh, they were the ones who were dealing with uh, with the hides of animals. They were the ones cleaning up after uh, other, those who were seen as above them. It was so restricted that in some uh, places, the people who were at the lowest level, the untouchables, were to remain as many as 96 paces away from someone who was deemed above them. Very, very strict in the ways in which the boundaries were defined and the uh, untouchability was a literal restriction uh, on them. Does it still exist, the system in India? Not in the ways that, that it might have long ago, um, but it certainly has cast a shadow uh, over the country. People are aware of the caste into which they had been born. It's a lineage. Uh, one is born into it. Um, of course, untouchability in the caste system itself were outlawed um, in uh, 1949 and 1950. So in the same ways that in our country, discrimination is presumably against the law, that doesn't mean that discrimination doesn't still happen there or here. Okay, so under the caste system that existed then and to some extent now, if you are born in a very low class, but you turn out to be a superstar intellect and a great uh, writer or a great person in some way, you still cannot escape your caste, more or less. Is that right in India? Well, there is a phenomenon known as passing, which uh, occurred 
in the United States during the time of Jim Crow, where people who were assigned to what I would call the, the lowest caste, the subordinated caste in the United States, um, if they looked a certain way, they could try to pass as being someone from the uppermost group, uh, if they could pass as white. Some people did that. And the same can be said for people in India. If they uh, get outside of the village, if they move beyond the spaces where people know them and know their lineage, where they can try to pass as something other than than what they were actually born to. And so that's that's one of the ways that people try to escape. Now, you talk about the Nazis and what they did when they took over power in Germany uh, in the 1930s. And so to my surprise, you point out that they studied the U.S. racial situation because they thought the Americans had perfected a caste system, in effect, and they either came over to study it or they studied it in Germany. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it was just uh, stunning and wrenching to discover this. I mean, I I actually wasn't uh, looking at originally at Germany, but it was after Charlottesville that I had to take a closer look because it was at Charlottesville that we saw that the that the protesters were merging the symbols of two very, very different cultures across time and across oceans. They saw a connection between the Confederacy and Nazi Germany and those who were protesting the possible removal of the Robert E. Lee statue. And so that is what prompted me to look into Germany and to see what was it Uh, that Germany had been doing in the decades after the war to reconcile this history and to to atone for what they had done. And that's what set me on the course of of even looking at Germany to begin with. And then I was just stunned to discover that German eugenicists had been in dialogue with American eugenicists in the years leading up to the war. I had, had no idea of that. American eugenicists were writing books that were huge bestsellers in Germany, so much so that the Nazis were actually using books written by American eugenicists in their curriculum for German children during the Nazi regime, which was stunning. And then, as mentioned, the Nazis actually sent uh, researchers to the United States to study what the United States had done to subjugate African-Americans during Jim Crow, the uh, the restrictions that were placed upon African-Americans. And they were particularly interested in the ways in which American jurisprudence had found to define race, define groups on the basis of fractions of blood. And they studied the anti-miscegenation laws, which often uh, had embedded in, in them definitions of who could be counted as white, who could be counted as, as black. And so they were particularly interested in that. And they looked at those things as they were uh, devising what would ultimately become uh, the Nuremberg laws. Of course, they needed no one to teach them how to hate. They did not need that. But they did look to the United States for jurisprudence that they could uh, model what they were doing. So the Indian system had been around a few thousand years, the American system a couple hundred years. The Germans decided to invent a caste system basically overnight. Uh, how did they do that? Basically say to people who are Jewish, you now are the lowest people in the, in the uh, society. And how did they get other Germans to agree with that? Well, they did a series of, of things that were uh, essentially stripping people of the rights that they had had. They actually barred Jewish people from being able to continue to do the work that they had been doing, barred Jewish people from being able to work in the government. Um, they began to tighten uh, the restrictions um, over time. Uh, on them. And then, of course, they created the Nuremberg Laws, which came up with definitions as to who was identified as Jewish or not. And, and all of these things were, again, building restrictions on a people. And the ways that they began to try to find ways to convince 
the German people that this was the, the righteous thing. I mean, there was a tremendous amount of propaganda that was part of the dehumanization process to make uh, German citizens feel that they were somehow superior to their Jewish neighbors. I mean, it's just it's part of the dehumanization process that goes on in creating any kind of caste system. So let's talk about the United States. Uh, the country has started more or less in the 1600s. How did slavery start here? It wasn't nat naturally indigenous to the country. We had Indians and Native Americans, and we had the settlers from Western Europe. How did the, the process of slavery begin in this country? Well, we, we now know because we had the 400th anniversary of 1619, which was the, uh, the year that the first 20 and odd Africans arrived uh, in, at Port Comfort in Virginia. And that was thus the first arrival of people who would ultimately become the enslaved caste, the enslaved group of people in this country. This was something that predated the founding of the actual country that we now know to be the United States. And slavery ended up going on for so long, it lasted for 246 years. That's 12 generations. So you think about, you know, how many greats you have to add to the word grandparent to and begin to imagine how long it ultimately would last. Early in this country, or before the United States was really formed, we had whites coming over. Sometimes they were indentured servants. They were forced to work for a certain period of time before they could be free. And I thought that some Africans were indentured servants for a while. When did it slip into slavery versus being an indentured servant? In the beginning, remember, this is a country that was not even yet a country. It was a colony, and people were scrambling, essentially, to survive, but they were doing whatever they felt they needed to do, and so they were making use of whatever labor they could get to. And of course, they attempted to enslave indigenous people upon first arrival, and, and of course, we know that many of them were able to, to escape. They knew the land. <laughs> the colonists did not succeed in attempting to, to enslave indigenous people, but rather drove them from the land. And so this was an emerging uh, hierarchy in which there was a time in which there was an overlap of an indentured servitude among those who had come from Europe. But ultimately, certainly by 1640, enslavement as it came to be known, uh, in which the definition of, of what you were going to be was related to um, the mother, meaning if the mother was enslaved, her children would become enslaved and thus set in motion um, inherited slavery. And of course, it was chattel slavery in which uh, an individual was owned with no uh, hope of, of escape uh, legally, meaning that, that this was a, a considered lifelong enslavement for the people. So this is something that by 1640 was, uh, was essentially the way that enslavement ultimately would be. By the time of the revolution in this country, uh, many people recognized, if they didn't recognize it before, that enslavement was morally wrong. But uh, at the time of the Declaration of Independence, when Thomas Jefferson says all people are equal, he actually has slaves. And the colonists were not able to ever agree that slavery should be abolished. So why is it that it became such an important part of our society in the South and eventually faded away in the North? Well, this book is primarily about caste in general um, and not about slavery solely. But I can say that this was uh, the foundation of the economic political and social order so that many, many people became invested in maintaining uh, slavery, not just those in the, in the South, but also those in the North. The enslaved people were uh, mortgaged. Uh, they were insured. I mean, there were many Northern companies that had an investment um, in slavery as an institution. And so it became essentially um, part of the economy of the country, a tremendous 
investment was made. And, and it's hard for you know, a society such as this that had been so deeply dependent on enslavement to let it go. We know, obviously, that this ended up being the centerpiece of what would become the Civil War. Well, the Civil War occurs, and ultimately, the war is really fought over slavery. And when the war is over, um, the South has lost the war, the Confederacy's lost. Eventually, the Constitutional Amendment is passed to free slaves. But did the life for former slaves in the South really change that much? Well, what happened was that there was this brief moment of hopefulness that there might be a truly multiracial democracy at work in, in a time period known as Reconstruction. But that ended um, in the, in the uh, 1870s and uh, in a compromise. And ultimately, the northern troops, uh, the federal government withdrew from oversight of what was supposed to be the incorporation of people who have been enslaved into the general uh, Southern economy and Southern uh, body politic. And because the, there was no oversight, the former Confederates were able to return to power. And uh, they then set in, in, in place what would ultimately be known as Jim Crow. These were the laws of severe restriction and segregation that put in place essentially a, a, a sort of a formal caste system in which everything that you could and could not do was based upon uh, your being part of whatever caste you were in. So that meant that, for example, uh, black and white people could not so much as play checkers together in, in Birmingham. Uh, there were uh, separate Bibles and courtrooms throughout the South. That's how extreme these restrictions and boundaries were. And so uh, this set in motion of laws and customs and protocols and that any breach of the caste system could literally mean a person's life. And you say that in part because there were enormous numbers of lynchings Uh, that you talk about during this Jim Crow era and the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, lynchings had no punishment. In other words, those who did the lynching never seemed to be uh, caught or never seemed to be punished anyway. Is that right? Yes. I mean, it's it was part of the landscape of the Jim Crow South. And it, it happened with such frequency in the early decades of the 20th century. It happened every three or four days. There was a lynching somewhere in the American South in the first decades of the 20th century. And this was part of the ritual of enforcement of the caste system. It was a way of terrorizing people in the subordinated caste to, to, to know to stay in their place. And these things could occur for any number of presumed infractions. It could be for not stepping off the sidewalk fast enough, for uh, not tipping one's hat, um, and of course, for the, the accusation of a breach of one of the hallmarks of caste, which would be um, what was then known as miscegenation, meaning any effort or gesture that would signify that one was crossing over the line of involvement between Black people and white people on a romantic level. And so um, people could literally lose their lives for, for any of these breaches of the caste system. In caste terms, it's called endogamy, meaning the idea that people should only marry within their own group, within their own caste. And the United States observed endogamy uh, legally um, until uh, 1967 with the case that went to the Supreme Court. That's, that's how invested, you might say, American jurisprudence was in maintaining one of the hallmarks, what I would call um, one of the pillars of caste, which would be endogamy. Now, civil rights revolution began, you could argue, in the 1950s and 60s in the United States. And some people would say it sort of began with Rosa Parks uh, not giving up her seat. 
uh, that was reserved theoretically for a white person. But you point out in the book that I didn't know that in the days that the bus system was segregated, if you were a black person, you would get on the bus, pay your fare, but you wouldn't have to go to the back of the bus by walking through the bus. You have to get, pay your fare, get off the bus, and go into the, another door so you wouldn't actually walk past white people. Is that right? That is correct. It was one of the rituals of enforcement um, of humiliation and dehumanization so that what would happen is that they would have to climb aboard the bus in order to pay their fare. And then they were to disembark, go down those steps and then run to the back door of the bus and to board the bus from the back, because that is where African-Americans were consigned to sit to begin with. And so they could not disturb what I would call Dominic Cass, the idea or the pillar known as uh, purity versus pollution, which is not to go and pollute the space of those who were deemed dominant in, in that world. And so that was one of the rituals that they had to uh, adhere to. And one of the things that you, you realize is that this hurt people in so many ways. I mean, sometimes the bus might drive off without them. That would put them in a situation where they might be late for work, which would further jeopardize their situation, being able to take care of their families. And there's tremendous consequences. Those who could least afford to be late for work, to, to lose their jobs, were those who were most likely to be in a situation where they might do so. Now, I remember growing up in Baltimore, which is sort of a southern town, some would say. Um, and when I was growing up in the 1950s, um, uh, before the civil rights laws, um, blacks were not allowed to go to swimming pools that whites could go to or go to beaches that whites could go to. And in fact, sometimes uh, you point out in your book, if blacks were to go in the water that whites had swam in, then all the whites would get out and they'd have to get the water changed or something like that. Was that very common in the United States then? It was widespread. And in fact, it was the standard all over the country, not just in the South. I mean, the Midwest, um, in the, the Northeast and the, the South, of course, um, this was a common practice. It was part of what I described as the idea of purity versus pollution to go to the extent of, of segregating and, and reserving, protecting the purity of, you know, an essential element of you know, of life itself, water. And it was th this idea of purity versus pollution and the careful policing of the waters actually also was a matter of life and death for people. Um, in 1919, a teenager actually died because the, the beaches of, of Lake Michigan and Chicago were segregated. In fact, the water was segregated. There was a line, an invisible line in the water, and he happened to wade in, past that invisible line, and he was stoned to death for having done so, and thus setting off one of the worst race riots in, in the country in 1919. Now, under a caste system, there's virtually nothing you can do to get out of the caste you're born into. And you cite an example, in effect, in your own case, you are uh, college educated. You're a New York Times uh, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, uh, a well-published uh, author, and uh, some, somebody who's won the, the National Humanities Medal, as I mentioned. But you point out in, in the case in the book that one time you go to Chicago and you have drug enforcement agency people following you for no reason, it seems, other than that you were African-American. Is that right? Yeah, that was something that happened. That was one out of many things that would happen because people would make assumptions. I mean, in the caste system, that is what people do. The metric or the signifier of one's place in the caste system or what's presumed about an individual is what you look like. And so uh, they made assumptions about me. 
Um, there was a case that I mentioned in the book trying to, to do a story and I'd made arrangements with this gentleman uh, who wanted very much to be in the, in the, in the paper, uh, the New York Times. Um, but uh, when I got there, he, he happened not to have arrived yet. I was told to wait. And then by the time a man walked in, I was told to go over to him. And that happened to be the gentleman I was to be interviewing. And he initially just waved me away and said, I don't have the time to talk with you. And I said, I, I'm supposed to interview you. And he said, no, no, I'm, it's, you don't understand. I have a very, very important uh, interview with the New York Times. I don't have time to talk with you. And I said, well, I, I am with the New York Times. I'm, I'm the one who called to, to have this interview with you. And he said, well, I, he said, well, how do I know that? And I said, how would you know that. Well, I'm, I'm here to interview you. He said, well, I'll need to see some ID. And I said, I, I don't have any ID. I shouldn't have to, to show you ID. But I showed it to him. And he said, you don't have anything with the New York Times on it. I said, I'm, I'm sorry. This is what I have. And I have this appointment. We should have been interviewing by now. We should be finished with the interview by now. I said, no one else has come in. I'm the one who's here to interview you. I'm the one to talk with you over the phone. And he said, I'm going to have to ask you to leave because she'll be here any minute. And this is a gentleman who wanted very badly to be in the New York Times, so much so that he told a person to leave to make sure he could be interviewed by the New York Times. So the point of that is that um, the assumptions that people make about one another on the basis of the programming um, and the, the messages that we've all uh, uh, received as to who should be where in society can actually thwart individuals um, in their work. And this is someone who missed out on, on being in that article. I had other people I was interviewing. I was able to finish the piece. I wanted to include him very much, but it turned out that you know he, he asked me to leave, but that meant that he lost out something to, uh, as well. And so you think about the many times that um, in the course of interaction and the course of transactions in a given society, how many missed opportunities might be occurring because people are um, going along with the programming and missing out on opportunities that they actually might want. Now, you point out in the book that the cost of the caste system is not a um, penalty only for those who are in the caste that is uh, being discriminated against. It's a cost to all of society. And can you explain what you mean by that? Part of the, the way that we can see it is is the is what happened in the United States with COVID nineteen um, in in so many ways. When the fact that the United States, with all of its its wealth and with all of its technological advancements, ended up. Uh, leading the world in COVID deaths and COVID cases. And there, there seems to be no way to reasonably explain how it could be that the United States of, of all countries could be leading in the grimmest of distinctions in that way. And that at one point led so far above above India, the, the second ranked uh, country at one point in the number of COVID cases. And so this is an example of how, you know, there's something about these divisions that for one thing, creates um, a less magnanimous society and us versus them, almost a uh, division that, that can mean that people are not feeling as invested in their fellow uh, fellow human beings. But also it means the reason in some ways why we we are alone among our peer nations without you know, health care for all. Um, we are alone in, in that way. We, we are singular in that way. Most of our peer nations have long since had some type of widely available health care. Uh, one of the things that I included in the book was I, I included a um, part of uh, an interview that was done in, in Britain where people were, um, were Londoners, I should say, were being asked uh, to guess how much uh, Americans pay for certain services. And they were wildly off because they couldn't even comprehend 
how and why certain things were being paid for. I mean, a woman was saying, you know, was was asked how much did she think it cost to have a baby in the United States? And when she was told what to, what it was, she said to have a baby. So that makes no sense. Another person was asked, you know, how much would it cost for an American to um, have an ambulance take them from their home to the hospital for some, you know, for an emergency? And the person who was asked that said, they have to pay for that. There's a fee for that. So it's just a reminder when we look outside of ourselves and we look to um, live up to our creed and we look to um, to really live up to the um, the belief in being um, advanced as we imagine ourselves to be and wish to be. It means that there still are um, major, major things that um, that we need to address as a country. Now, you suggest perhaps there should be a commission to study the cost of the caste system in the United States. You think that's realistic that it could be done? And what do you think it would show? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's a matter of, of common will to make something like that happen. I think that it would expose the many inequities in our society that ultimately hurt everyone, you know, from in every sphere of our society, from education uh, to transportation to uh, to housing. I mean, so many ways that people are harmed when there is great inequity in a society. So I think it's everybody recognizes we have racial problems in the United States and have had them for hundreds of years and probably will have them for quite some time. Your purpose in the book, I assume, is to get people to understand the system better than they maybe they do now. Why do you think the caste system analysis helps people understand their problem better? Well, I think the caste um, allows us to focus on the structure of a thing as opposed to perhaps feelings you know, uh, prejudice. It, it takes us to the infrastructure of our divisions. It allows us to see uh, the bones of a thing. I, mean, I describe our country as being like an old house. And when you have an old house, you you really you may not want to go in the basement after rain to see what the rains have wrought. But if you don't go in there, it's not as if whatever you're facing is going away. It's going to be there whether you choose to see it or not. And the idea of, you know, of, uh, of our country being like a house also reminds us of the fact that, um, that there are the pillars and the joists and the beams that uphold the entire structure, the building itself, and that we often don't pay enough attention to that because we have lived with it for so long. We pay more attention to the physical things that we can see, the surface things that are visible. Um, and so this is, this is asking upon us to look at what we often cannot see what's underneath the divisions that we've inherited. And that's one of the ways that I think caste can help us to see another dimension of the divisions that we have. And this is a book that reminds the readers of the flaws of people in the United States. Uh, have you been surprised that the book has sold so well and been so critically reviewed so well, even though it reminds people of all of our flaws? Did the, 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 re the critical reaction and the popularity of the book surprise you? Well, all that a person can do, all that a writer can do is do their very best. And then you send it out into the world. You have no way of uh, knowing what kind of uh, circumstances uh, will be in place. You don't know what the world will be like by the time you finish it. And it just so happens that in recent years, there have been many people who looked around and, and they've said, you know, I that I don't recognize my country or this is not what America stands for. And when I hear that, it's a reminder to me that not enough people uh, in our country know our country's true history uh, and that the things that have happened in recent years, I think particularly the, um, the fact that we all saw a man killed before our very eyes, George Floyd in May of 2020, and the, uh, the response to that, the protests that summer were a, a wake up call to, to many Americans 
uh, about um, the the deep seated challenges the country still faced, and that the people may not have paid enough attention to, but now we're we're forced to. And I think that that awareness of that has made people want to know more about how we got to where we are. Well, I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today. We've been in a very good conversation with Isabel Wilkerson. Thank you for doing this with us. Thank you for having me. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.